Welcome to the College Press Box podcast, presented in conjunction with the Football Writers Association of America. Here is your host, Ted Ganji. Well, that was quite the college football weekend we just had. And the biggest game of the day was Texas A&M knocking off the number one team in the country, the Alabama Crimson Tide, ending their 19-game winning streak and a whole bunch of other streaks, including uh, the fact that Nick Saban had never previously lost to one of his former assistants. Well, it finally happened. Uh, The Aggies got him 41-38 at Kyle Field, 108,000 or so there to witness it. And one of the folks who was there, uh, football writers, remember Travis L. Brown from the Bryan College Station Eagle will join us to talk about uh, the Aggies uh, big win, uh, getting back on track after a couple of subpar performances within conference and uh, their victim, the Alabama Crimson Tide. uh, They're the subject of a new book by uh, former ESPN researcher Brad Edwards called Dynasty by the Numbers, which is really a pretty fascinating look at uh, what has transpired Uh, in the Nick Saban era. But before we get to that, let's uh, recap a little bit of FWAA news. In addition to uh, Alabama being knocked from their uh, perch at number one in the FWAA NFF Super 16 poll, the uh, Iowa-Penn State game was a biggie. And Iowa's Matt Hankins earned our Bronco Nagurski Trophy National Defensive Player of the Week as he led uh, an effort uh, that came up with four interceptions to give Iowa 20 on the season as they knocked off Penn State to uh, move up in the poll as well. And, of course, the biggest news of all was number one going down at the hands of Texas A&M this past Saturday night. And joining us to talk about the Aggies and that big upset win is Travis L. Brown from the Bryan College Station Eagle. Quite a Saturday night at Kyle Field, wasn't it? Yeah, you, you, you know, it's it's always fun to, to go back and, and look at those games like that one in LSU. And you, you talk to people and say, oh, man, wasn't it great to be there on the sidelines? And in hindsight, it was great to be there. But in the moment, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, my deadline's in 20 minutes. How am I going <laughs> to pull this off? So, yeah, in hindsight, it was a great night and uh, it was it was a lot of fun to be to be around and, and see the, the the chaos that happened afterwards and uh, some of the photos that came out of that. So, uh, yeah, always good to cover the the. it's always fun to cover the uh, the, the game of the weekend. You know, in Texas A&M has been one of the teams uh, in the country that's been a little bit of a quandary for folks. Uh, clearly, when you lose your starting quarterback early in the season, uh, A&M's struggled against Colorado. Uh, they've lost uh, two SEC games that they were favored to win. And then they come out and beat the number one team in the country with a quarterback who uh, plays great, gets injured, comes back, rallies the team. Um, when you look at this Aggie team, how surprised were you that um, – how surprised were you that that they really came out and played as well as they did on Saturday night? Oh, I was absolutely shocked. Um, you know, I, I think the podcast that we do at the Eagle, our, our title of it was, Will A&M Even Cover the Spread? And uh, they did much more than that. It was uh, it, it was it was shocking to see how early AM was able to jump out on offense and um, really put some points on the board. Cause that's something they'd struggled with in all the games prior um, with Zach Calzada and this offensive line. Um, the um, they, they seem to have found the right mix of offensive line. You know, someone, the all American Kenyon green has played just about every position on the offensive line this season and moving him out to left tackle where everyone thought he would be most of uh, the season this year uh, seemed to really 
be the trick. And then uh, uh, Zach Calzada came out and, and had a lot of confidence. If you watched him during the Mississippi State game, the uh, Arkansas game, it, it seemed like the game was moving a little faster. And he, he had a lot of happy feet, especially if there was uh, pressure coming in on the pocket, when wasn't setting his feet to make the throws. And almost all the way through the first two and a half quarters of the game. I mean, he looked like a completely different quarterback with how uh, confident he looked in the pocket, how well he set his feet to make his throws. There's a little spell there in the middle of the third quarter where it kind of reverted back to the old ways, but then he came back in late in the game and was able to set his feet and make the throws. And I think that is the player that Jimbo Fisher um, and his staff recruited is the one that they saw setting his feet, making strong throws, maybe taking a hit or two in the pocket, but being confident in his play. Uh, and that was kind of the anomaly of the two weeks before is just a guy who the game was moving a little too fast and he was a little uh, nervous and not setting his feet in the pocket. Well, I think the average fan takes a look at uh, at the rankings and thinks, well, you know, this Texas A&M team, you know, they should be competing uh, for a playoff spot, if not a national championship, uh, based on last year, based on preseason expectations. But I think what you touched on, you know, shuffling on the offensive line, a backup quarterback trying to find his confidence. Uh, those are little things that, you know, I think even even a hardcore fan doesn't doesn't always see. And clearly when the number one team comes to town and even if Alabama wasn't number one, it's Alabama. It's just a little different, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, you look at I'm not, not trying to say that A&M Alabama is a rivalry game, but Alabama is the team in the conference that when every when they come to town, everybody's they're going to get everybody's best game because it's Alabama. They want to uh, be the team. There's so many storylines that have have always come out year after year of who's going to be that team to dethrone Alabama. And so if you look at rivalry games, look at what was going on in, in Dallas uh, at the same time or any rivalry game. You, you, you look at the A&M Arkansas game every year, because I think a lot of people consider that a rivalry game. Mm-hmm. Why Arkansas was able to come in and step up and, and, and hold um, those games in the past to, to overtime, to really close games when they had some really bad teams. It's because you just play up to that game and, and, and have a lot of, a lot more physicality. I, I think a little bit of that did happen because it is Alabama coming to town and they wanted to make a point. Um, but I think that a big part of it too, was a lot of things that hadn't necessarily been clicking the past two weeks started to click because I mean, it is a talented A&M team. It is a team that was ranked highly preseason because they returned a lot of pieces from last year uh, and, and things just weren't clicking. And, and for, for whatever reason, uh, the practice they had, the game plan that they had, um, things started clicking um, this, this go around, especially to the other kind of mitigating factor in all this is AM's had a lot of injuries this year too, just beyond Haynes King um, that has really forced a lot of um, players to, to that, that, that weren't necessarily going to be key contributors this year to step up and step in. Uh, and I think that having a couple of weeks under their belt with those guys as well um, helped the game slow down a little bit. Talking with Travis L. Brown from the Bryan College Station Eagle as we talk about the Texas A&M Aggies and their 41-38 win over number one Alabama to earn them the Cheez-It Bowl National Team of the Week here on the College Press Box podcast. And, you know, you look at uh, that Arkansas game and, and the subsequent Mississippi State game, and we see this all the time in college football. It's kind of like A&M let Arkansas beat them twice, right? So then, then they jump in, they beat the number one team in the country. Now they have to go on the road and face kind of an unknown quantity in a Missouri team. You know, we're talking about college football players now, right? 
And, mm-hmm. and we're talking about, and I hate to call them kids because it, that's probably overused, but they, they are kids. They are emotional. Um, you know, this 24 hour rule of, you know, let's move on to the next opponent. This isn't easy. I mean, winning is, is hard. And I think, um, I think A&M, uh, what they've been through emotionally in the last three weeks, um, I mean, it, it can't be anything other than draining. Uh, what do you look for as you cover this team uh, going into Missouri week? Yeah, I mean, you, you make a good point. Uh, and I know you were talking almost kind of from the mental side of it, but even looking at the, at the end of the third quarter in the Alabama game, mm-hmm. there was players out there that looked absolutely gassed. And that's not necessarily um, an, uh, something that you necessarily see from AM a lot. And I don't think it's an indication or, or an indictment on their strength and conditioning. I think it's just that the game was that physical and that hard and, and that taxing. So it will be interesting to see how they bounce back from that this year and, and, and kind of do their recoveries and stuff heading in physically. But then, you know, when you like what you were talking about mentally, I mean, Jimbo Fisher called on it the same way that Saban did before the last game. He said it the exact same way that for AM, this this is a trap game. You have the emotional high of of beating Alabama and you're on top of the world and and nothing can nothing can wrong can go wrong. And, and then you travel to a what what most people are or what I've seen is is not a great Missouri team this year. Um and and if you if you or or whoever doesn't come out to play, um anybody can win any week, which is kind of indica- an indication of a little bit of what happened in, in Kyle field this last Saturday. Um, so yeah, I'll be really curious to see how they bounce back from this and see how much of the play um, on Saturday was an anomaly and how much of it was really, this is who this AM team is because there's probably no better team to follow up with, with Missouri and some of the struggles that they've had Um so far this 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 season and and to see if if how much of that sticks with AM. Winning is hard and winning in the Southeastern Conference is hard and winning on the road, <clears throat> winning on the road in the Southeastern Conference is really hard. Just ask Alabama. Um, but when you look at the rest of the season for AM, um, you know, they still have to go to Ole Miss, they still have to go to LSU. Uh, at this point, what do you think their ceiling is now that you know perhaps you know, they found their quarterback and, 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 and hopefully for them, they they found, uh, they found their confidence. Yeah. I mean, all the rest of their games now, if they play that same way that they played against Alabama, I don't see why all the rest of their games aren't winnable. I mean, I think the toughest one, if you look, is probably going to be at Ole Miss with what they're able to do offensively. Um, And especially they're able to do in the passing game um, with how, badly they were um defended mike leach's passing game um i mean granted i think that a lot of that was just not necessarily the best game plan um from from mike elko that that helped exploit some 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 holes and some some inconsistencies with their defense but i mean i i think that that they, they can uh i mean you know missouri and south carolina are, are not good teams this year auburn's going to be a test but it's a home game uh, i think that they uh, do that so i think Ole miss you know Prairie View, they're going to win LSU, I mean, who knows what's going on with them or, or mm-hmm. if, if that the, I mean, the only X fact, the two X factors there are a it's in Baton Rouge and B is it going to be a team that's really who's fighting for their coach's job, which has been kind of a storyline that's happened several times uh, between both A&M and LSU for that last game of the season. Uh, and, and weird things can happen in those scenarios too. But I think Ole Miss is definitely uh, the one to circle. And if that's the case, uh, 
um, then you're looking at a team who is 10 and two and 10 and two in the sec actually might, depending on how some other things shake out, might, might put you squarely in another new year's six bowl. Um, you, you never know with how crazy this season is. And, and that, that would be a little bit of a, a, a weird scenario for a team that lost to a decent Arkansas team and a bad Mississippi state team to actually then find yourself put into that position. Um, I think uh, the, 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 the thing to see last year, AM lost to Alabama early in the year and then re, uh, uh, strung off nine straight wins and went to the orange bowl. And that was kind of a motivating factor. It's going to be interesting to see if this kind of serves in the same capacity uh, in a different way to see if they are able to take the confidence that they got from this game and string off uh, a winning streak to end the season um, that would kind of actually put them closer to some of the goals that they set and some of the expectations that were set prior to the season. Well, Travis, uh, there's, you know, we're about halfway through the football season. There's, there's a long, long way to go. Um, I think, uh, you know, someone like yourself covering the team, it, it certainly is a lot more fun when the team is winning. It's certainly a lot more fun when uh, you see an upset like that in, uh, in front of a full house and, 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 a, and a field storming afterwards. Uh, I know that anybody who covers an event like that, um, I, well, I shouldn't say I know that because um, I, I don't know how much you really appreciate uh, being sort of caught up in the moment and, you know, writer, writers are human. Journalists are human. Um, it had to be kind of a, kind of a, a, a special night, uh, even for you and your colleagues sitting in the press box. Yeah. You know, it, it's fun to think back at some of those, you know, there's, you, you cover so many games and maybe this is just because I don't necessarily have a great memory, but you cover <laughs> so many games that a lot of times the ins and outs of what happens on, on a, a generic, SEC, you know, game in the middle of the season, you, you don't necessarily remember, but there are games that stick out vividly about what deadline was like and what were you thinking during the game and what were the storylines and, and what were some of the conversations? And this will definitely be one of them. We were kind of talking about where this ranks uh, in AM hit recent history and AM history as part of important games, exciting games, inserted whole plethora of different adjectives. I think as far as exciting games and games that mean the most, this is right up there amongst the top of AM wins, especially at Kyle field. Um, for me, who's who have been on the beat for uh, six seasons now, I think as far as exciting games go, like just, just games that leave you scratching your head about what just happened. Honestly, I think the LSU seven overtimes might rank just a hair above <laughs> this one because of how crazy that, I mean, you know, A&M was in it and they were out of it and they were in it and then they were out of it. And then they, the Kellen Mond with the knee down and the storyline of the, the, the 12th man productions, people trying to get this video on the scoreboard. So, so they knew to, to challenge it or look at the replay of his knee down and then seven overtimes, which, which after that season, isn't going to happen ever again because of that game and all the rules changes that happened uh, mm -hmm. because of that game. I, I think that's the one that's always going to stick out of my mind as, as that's, that was crazy. And then, and it never being LSU and putting the, the score of the game in their ring and how, uh, how blown up that game was. That one was crazy. But, but as far as what 
this the game means to the program and games that were played in Kyle Field. Um, I think have a good course coming off of two wins and or two, two losses and then playing number one and having a quarterback. It kind of reminded me a little bit. I, of course, before I came down here to AM, I was covering TCU for the Star Telegram, and you kind of not nearly of the same caliber capacity of game. But if you look at uh, TCU Oregon in the Alamo bowl, when uh, Trayvon Boykin gets arrested and doesn't get to play in the game and you have Bram Kohlhausen who hadn't ever started a game and wouldn't ever start a game for the Aggies again, because he was a senior comes in there and becomes this folk hero from this one mm-hmm. uh, huge performance. It, it kind of reminds me of that. Now Zach Calzada will have plenty of time to cement or, or not cement his legacy after this game, but having that one guy who is just, not supposed to be in the situation when it started and to perform the way he did. Um, the storylines were just so rich in that one. And um, it's for sure going to be one of those ones that you remember um, for a long time, because you got, you got fans on the field, you got storylines, you got uh, a lot of college, what would have become college football tropes talking about, Nick Saban assistance and Alabama's winning streaks and, and the dynasty um, that you'll remember that, that that was the game that all, all of those ended. And, and if Alabama restarts it or not afterwards, that that was a, a breaking point in what Alabama's done in, in being one of the best uh, sports programs of all time. Well, it was definitely a fitting end uh, to what was a crazy Saturday in week six of college football, one of the best Saturdays in recent memory uh, for sure. And Travis L. Brown from the Bryan College Station Eagle, uh, we do appreciate your time and your insight on the Aggies and uh, enjoy the rest of the road. Anytime. And we move from the Cheez-It Bowl National Team of the Week, Texas A&M, to their victims, Alabama. And it's been quite the run during the Nick Saban era. And someone who knows that program as good as anybody is a former ESPN researcher, Brad Edwards. Brad has uh, got a book out. He's an author now. It's called uh, Dynasty by the Numbers, and it takes a really fascinating, in-depth, analytical, statistical, data-driven look at uh, what Alabama has been able to do uh, in what you would clearly call a dynasty, perhaps the uh, uh, the greatest dynasty of post-war era of college football and uh, And Brad's new book takes a really interesting and different look at what uh, has gone on with the Alabama program and just how much better they have been than everybody else, uh, not only in this era, but in really any era of the modern uh, college football game. And and when I caught up to Brad, uh, I asked him to sort of give us the concept of the book because it's really not your everyday publication. Yeah, Ted, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. it it's, a, it's a book, I think, that's really unique, um, not just within college football, but really within sports. Um, it, it, it's completely data-driven. You know, most books you actually read, it's primarily text, and every now and then you might have a, a photo or a chart or a graph that kind of supports the text. This is the opposite. Uh, this is all about the charts and graphs and what text is in there is what I would call in kind of caption format, where it's essentially explaining what you're seeing in the charts and graphs. So um, it is, uh, it's data driven. And, you know, as as I've said in the, uh, in the intro to the book, I, I don't think anything like this could have been written prior to the last 15 years because until that time, maybe with the exception of baseball, because baseball's always had so much to work with numbers-wise. Sure. 
Um, I, I don't think there was enough out there to fill up a book with different types of, of categories that, you know, like that are in there. Like um, they're just, there's so many things that people are able to do now with data uh, that didn't exist more than 15 years ago. You know, and I, when, I, when I say that, I mean, outside of typical box score stuff, mm -hmm. uh, there's just so much more now than there was. And then of course, the other element of this is that it's not just that you need all those different categories to be able to choose from, but in order to make a, a compelling book, you need a team, a subject that's been good enough in all those categories, if not great enough in all those categories, uh, to be able to, to make it worthwhile to read. And over the last 15 years, there have basically been two teams in mainstream American sports that fall into that category. It's Alabama football and the New England Patriots. And uh, so I wrote this about Alabama football and and that's basically um, the, the essence of the book. And when I when I started to put it together, the point was to show not that Alabama has been the best team in the country since Nick Saban got there. I, even Auburn fans would admit that. Mm -hmm. But it's how much better they've been than everyone else over that span. Now, obviously, they haven't won the, the title every year. Uh, six titles in 12 years is is pretty significant. I think anyone who follows the sport recognizes that. Um, but there's way more to it than just the national championships. Uh, when you when you start getting into accomplishments that they've had in, you know, say the the AP poll, the NFL draft, uh, you look at individual awards and honors, which they've just you know been winning left and right over the years. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff with um, with the the statistics on offense on defense uh even recruiting numbers which are something that are fairly recent development in college football history they've dominated those so you put it all together and um that's what i set out to do was to show how much better they've been than everyone else since about 2008 2009 when this run began uh, but in the process what i discovered is that they have dominated on a level, they've sustained the success on a level that no other program in college football history has been able to sustain for as long as they now have. And, and I say that as someone who spent a lot of time working on college football's 150th anniversary celebration two years ago. Mm -hmm. So I, I know what the other dynasties have done. And, and when you, you know, when you look at it over a span of 10 years or more, there, there, there really aren't even many out there that you could even create an argument uh, for uh, to put up against what Alabama has done under Nick Saban. The book is called Dynasty by the Numbers. Uh, we're being joined uh, by Brad Edwards, the author, um, longtime uh, former ESPN researcher and on-air personality. And Brad, we talked before the season started uh, when you had told me about the book um, and I said, you know, I really want to have you on the podcast. And I thought to myself, well, when would be a good time to have Brad Edwards talk about his book, obviously other than when it's come out. And now we're talking uh, after Alabama has lost a game um, because you get all these pundits out there who say, well, the dynasty's over. And, and I'm sure over the 13 year period, um, there were lots of people who said, well, it's over, it's over, it's over. When, when you conceived, the the book itself when you really started to dive into the numbers when did when did the light come on to make you realize hey i'm i'm kind of on to something here well I, I tell you the truth i i knew it before i ever started working on it just because that was really my job at espn you know 
going back, a lot of people remember the work that I did on the BCS, where I, I focused on the the numbers within the BCS formula. You know, the the polls and the computer rankings and all the things that went into determining which two teams were going to play for the national title. And I got a lot of mileage out of that. My career basically became, uh, you know, what it was because of the BCS. Sure. But when it when it ended after the 2013 season, I had to kind of rebrand myself. And being a numbers guy, what I kind of gravitated to was was telling stories through numbers. And I did that for SportsCenter over the next, I guess it was seven seasons, uh, you know, before I finished up at ESPN. And uh, obviously, you know, anyone working on college football from 2014 through 2020 uh, did, did a lot of stuff on Alabama. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I did things on other programs too, but there was uh, enough that I had done on Alabama over those years that, that I was certain that there was really, you know, something to it. And it really, um, it, you know, it's funny that you, you bring this up when they're coming off a loss because how many times did people say every time Alabama lost a game, well, you know, this is the end of it. Um, I, I even uh, mentioned in, in the, the front of the book that right before Alabama beat Notre Dame in the national championship game to end the 2012 season. So this is right when Alabama uh, was about to win its third national title in four years. I wrote an article for ESPN.com talking about how in modern college football, there, there really um, are not many examples of a run like Alabama was on at that time, which, which was really finishing its fifth year. Uh, there aren't many examples of something like that lasting more than seven or eight years. So my point was, we're getting near the end of this. You know, just enjoy it while you can because <laughs> it's not going to last much longer. And, and here we are. And, and look, in, in the back of the book, um, I, I put together some numbers showing the the six national titles over 12 seasons, 2009 through 2020. And, and that span of 12 years, I divided it into the first six years and then the the more recent six years. And what's interesting is that you have three national titles in each six-year span, mm -hmm. but all of the other numbers, that, that at least anything that you would think that's important to building a program, were better, and a lot of them far better, over the more recent six years. So if you're plotting Alabama football in a graph, the line was still going up. Mm -hmm. And look, a lot of people, I think, would feel pretty safe in saying that 2020 was the best team that Nick Saban ever had anywhere that he coached. And, and so um, it kind of makes sense. And, and they were coming off of, uh, you know, what is the, the group that's out there uh, for the first time this fall uh, it was the highest rated recruiting class ever in the history of, you know, of, of those ratings. You can argue with how they do them, but but, you know, that that's that's what it says is that is that last year's Alabama recruiting class was the best ever. And so th there is this belief that it could go on, you know, much longer. It really, you know, I think a lot of people believe it's just a question of how much longer will Saban coach um, is how long this will last. Now, you know, it is it is fair to ask the question once again, could could this be the end of it? If you paid attention to Alabama's roster. This was always going to be the year that um, you better get them now. Right. Because. They missed so much from last year. In fact, I have a note in the book that 2020 Alabama was the first team since Yale in 1909 to have six consensus All-Americans in one season. 
and they lost all six of them, all six left. Uh, in addition to that, the highest draft pick off of last year's team was not one of the six consensus All-Americans. It was <laughs> Jalen Waddell, who missed two-thirds of the season with injury, which is the only reason he wasn't a consensus All-American. And uh, and then you had Christian Barmore, who was like the 38th overall pick, who so he wasn't he wasn't quite a first round pick and he wasn't a consensus All-American, but there's another really good player. So you look at those eight guys alone, and you could make a case that no program has ever lost that much talent from one year to the next as Alabama lost from 2020 to 2021. So in, in pretty much any other era of college football, there's no way they would have even been ranked preseason number one. Um, but they were. And they, you know, they went the first five games without losing and now they've lost again. But I, I'm not saying that it's over. I mean, we've seen these Saban teams lose a conference game and then run the table from there. They've done it a few times. And so they could still win the whole thing. Uh, they don't look as good as a lot of the previous Alabama teams right now. But, hey, that's football. You could get better. Um, but but regardless of what happens, I, I think given what they lost from last year to this year and the number of players who you would expect to be coming back next year. This was never going to be one of Saban's better teams, uh, certainly from a, a talent and experience standpoint. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise that they lost a game. Question is, you know, how many more might they lose? Well, the natural roster turnover in college football um, where players exhaust their eligibility really makes their run all the more impressive are there a couple of things that stand out to you where Alabama was just ahead of the curve, whether it was with, with scheme or offensive balance or uh, having, uh, you know, 10, 11 analysts on their staff? Um, <laughs> is there other than the resources, clearly they have huge resources yeah. as do does everyone in the sec and, and, and many other power five schools, but w w was there some data point that told you, wow, Alabama's really ahead of the curve here. And um with that, the coaches that leave the program, and there have been a lot to leave and go get head coaching jobs elsewhere, what from the Alabama program would they most want to take with them? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because when you start asking the question of like, how is this built? Why are they successful? That's not necessarily easy to tell through the numbers because they've they've really been so consistent in a lot of areas over the years that I guess that's what I would point to more than anything. And you always hear Saban talk about the process. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think the numbers speak to that, which is there's this level of consistency um, where it just, it, it doesn't seem that they drop off the way that most programs do. And, uh, you know, I guess, I guess what I would look at is just this idea that um, most of the great coaches in history have, have had a span in their career where the game caught up to them mm -hmm. or their competition caught up to them. And the majority of them, it, it takes them maybe a couple of seasons to realize that they've been caught. And okay, now I've got to make an adjustment. I've got to change something. And, and the very best ones are the ones that were able to do that and then get back on top. Uh, Paul Paul Bryant falls into that category. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, he dominated the 60s at, at Alabama and then late 60s into 1970, was kind of mediocre, uh, certainly by his standards, mediocre. And uh, and then figured out he needed to change something, switch to the wishbone. Obviously, he didn't invent the wishbone. A lot of teams had already had success with it, but he switched to it and then proceeded to dominate uh, the 70s. 
And, and there have been a number of other examples like that with, with great coaches in history. Saban, I think what makes him special is his ability to recognize an issue before everyone else does. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times with Saban, it, 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 it's not even that it took a bad season. I and mean, he really, outside of three losses in 2010, has never had a bad season. I mean, I mean, how, how many programs would even call that a bad season? You know, but, but that's as bad as it's gotten for him. Um, it, it, it doesn't necessarily even take one loss in a game. Sometimes it's just a scare where Saban's like, all right, this is an issue. We've got to get it fixed. And, and what's difficult is to look at these numbers and, and say that the numbers capture everything. Because what I can tell you they don't capture are all the adjustments that he's had to make along the way. Because of the, you know, the spread and the quarterback run and the up tempo, all the things that that kind of that kind of developed uh, within the offenses in college football uh, since he first arrived at Alabama, he had to change his approach to defense first uh, in order to be able to stop those offenses, at least the very best ones. Then he changed his approach to offense because he knew, hey, if this stuff gives us trouble, it's going to give everyone else trouble. And if if this is, you know, remember the famous, hey, is this what we want football to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> comment. And and the answer was, yes, this is what we want football to be. And so his answer was pretty much, okay, then that's what we'll do. And we'll beat you playing that. And so he adjusted his approach to defense, to offense. He even had to adjust his approach to recruiting because he got, he got burned a little bit by the start of the early signing period. The very first year it happened um, was the worst signing class he's had in the last 14, which, um, you know, ranked fifth or sixth by some of the services <laughs> out there. Which you know, once again, for most for most programs out there, that's a great job. Um, but it was terrible for Alabama. And in fact, you could even make the argument part of their problem right now is that's the group uh, that are the seniors on this year's team, and the very best from that group left as juniors after last year's season. And so their their senior class right now is not as talented as what they normally have because of that class. But anyway, I, I think ultimately. When you look at uh, the adjustments that he's had to make along the way, those are tough. Those are tough to quantify, but those are a big part of him being able to accomplish something um, that that coaches before him have not been able to accomplish. As far as that consistency that he's been able to sustain, you mentioned the the coaches, uh, the assistant coaches. You know, I, I I document that in the book that the amount of turnover on the coaching staff, and, and we we know even those who aren't paying close attention know that he's losing coordinators very, very regularly. Like mm-hmm. almost every year he's replaced, he's replacing at least one of them, if not both. And what was crazy is I, I looked at the coaching staffs and 2017 and then 2020 were both national championships for, for Alabama. Saban was the only on-field coach who was on both of those staffs. You're, you're talking about a, a three season gap in between national championships. And there was a 100% turnover of his on-field assistant coaches and his strength and conditioning coach also changed from 2017 to 2020. And so for, for them to be able to do that, I mean, who else could survive that? And, and, and I mean, to be quite honest, early in his tenure, he probably wouldn't have been able to survive right. that because he hadn't built the foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it does speak to what he's been able to do, that he can survive all of those things uh, along with, and I, I didn't document this in the book, but I know it to be true, 
he's had more underclassmen taken in the first 50 picks of the NFL draft than any coach before him. And I, I, I don't even think it's close. Um, and, and we just assume that he's going to replace those guys and, and, and continue to reload. And, you know, at some point that should catch up with you. Uh, maybe this is the year. I don't know. But uh, up to this point, it hasn't. The book is Dynasty by the Numbers, um, an analytical breakdown of the Alabama football dynasty that uh, is ongoing uh, despite a loss uh, this past Saturday night at Texas A&M. Our guest has been Brad Edwards, um, formerly of ESPN and and certainly one of the guys, like I said, when we, uh, when we opened here, Brad, uh, people definitely know your work if they don't know your name. And I, I definitely appreciate you spending some time with us. And I got to say, even if you're not an Alabama fan, but especially if you are an Alabama fan, um, this is, uh, this is a fascinating read and, and I look forward to, uh, to diving into it as well. Appreciate your time and, uh, wish you the best, uh, the rest of the season. And, uh, I know you'll be keeping a close eye on Alabama and all the other teams as we, uh, as we push toward, uh, as we push toward playoff rankings and, uh, and the, uh, four teams that actually get there. Brad, appreciate the time. Thanks, Ted. A lot to talk about with that Texas A&M Alabama result this past Saturday night. As we look forward to week seven of the college football season, um, it's been a crazy season. No reason to believe uh, it won't get crazier as we get closer and closer to the first college football playoff rankings. Thank you once again for listening to the College Press Box podcast. Enjoy your college football Saturday. And until next time, I'm Ted Gange. The College Press Box podcast is a production of collegepressbox.com the official media website of Division I College Football. Special thanks to the members of the Football Writers Association of America. To provide feedback on the podcast, email us at podcast at collegepressbox.com. College Press Box is on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.